On this edition of Larry the Golf Guy, we talk with John Sawin, who is um, the director of golf uh, and vice president at Pebble Beach Resorts. Uh, and uh, John is um, someone who grew up in the Philadelphia area. We talk about his uh, introduction to the game, his uh, being part of the junior program at Marion, which is where uh, his family belonged in uh, the Philadelphia area. Uh, and um, how he went on from there to Princeton, where he was a four-year starter um, and had a terrific uh, collegiate golf career. And um, kind of going on from there, how he uh, didn't pursue professional golf, but went into investment banking, but kept up playing high-level amateur golf uh, with some notable successes, um, perhaps most notably winning the 2014 Pennsylvania Amateur at Oakmont, uh, but then he heads out west um, working in the technology group at uh, Barclays and then subsequently going to Evercore, um, and, um, uh, but then the Pebble Beach opportunity comes up for him, and he ends up uh, going over there and succeeding uh, the legendary R.J. Harper, who was um, uh, headed the golf operations there for um, many decades. Um, and uh, But uh, John uh, went over there in November 2017. So we talk about uh, what it's been like at Pebble Beach. He was there for the 2018 U.S. Amateur, 2019 U.S. Open. And of course, he's uh, preparing for the 2023 U.S. Women's Open, which is coming up in a few months. And of course, he also gets involved with um, the annual AT&T Pro-Am tournament. So we talk about all of that and, and what's going on at Pebble and some of the changes they've made and, and what his position is like there. So upcoming on this edition of Larry the Golf Guy, John Sawin of Pebble Beach. Well, welcome to another edition of Larry the Golf Guy. And I'm so pleased today to welcome to the podcast John Sawin, who is VP and Director of Golf at Pebble Beach um, and quite an accomplished player. We'll talk about all that. John, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Larry. Great to be here. Um, so, you know, it's funny, as I think back on this podcast, I keep running into people from the Philadelphia area. I've had, you know, a lot of Scott and I from Marion on, um, Jeff Kitty from Aronimink, um, uh, you know, folks from the cricket club and, um, and of course, Philadelphia plays such an important part in our history of the game and the architecture and everything. And that is where you grew up, right? I think in the, uh, Haverford, uh, area there. That's right. Yep. Spent the first 22 years of my life in that neck of the woods. So talk to me about just to give folks a little bit of context, how you first got introduced to the game. I, I think I remember seeing your dad, Henry, you know, uh, play golf at Georgetown. So you definitely had good golf genes. Um, but how yeah. and when did you first get introduced to golf? Yeah, golf is in our family's blood. Um, my dad played collegiately, as you said, still loves the game to this day. My mom came to it a little bit later in life. Um, I'm the second of five kids, a big Irish Catholic family and sporting was was very important to us. Um and golf was one of the many sports that my parents introduced us to. And it just happened to be the one that I took to and many of my siblings took to uh, more by process of elimination, perhaps, where this was my uh, I had a differentiated skill in golf, whereas I couldn't compete quite as well in the other sports. 
And you folks, I, I think you were part of the junior program at Marion, right? So, I mean, what an incredible golf course, one of the cathedrals of the game um, that you were privileged to sort of play as a junior. That must have been pretty neat. Yeah, 1996-97 was a huge two years in golf for me with Tiger Woods winning the Masters. Yeah. And my parents joined Marion Golf Club, and I was very fortunate to get to be a part of the junior program there, some junior camps in the summers. And I met a, a kid at the time, two years older. He's still my my best friend uh, named Tug Maud. And he really made golf cool at our school. And he was the best athlete in his class. And he chose to play golf uh, instead of lacrosse. And he brought a lot of other people along with him. And so uh, that was a big moment for me um, where I started to Stop playing less of the soccers and squash and lacrosse and baseball and, and focus more on golf. Fantastic. And I know, as you say, you know, you, you're still good friends. And I know you guys have played in USGA tournaments together and the like. Um, so what was your junior career like? I know you played at the Haverford School on your high school team. Um, I assume you must have played junior golf in the area and stuff. What was that like? I did. I was I was competitive in the area, but you know, as the second of five kids, we weren't traveling very often. It was just where could I get a ride to? And so I basically signed up for the same schedule of events that Tug did through the summer. Wherever he was going to play, I tried to just <laughs> catch a ride with him. Um and uh so I I played, I had a little bit of success. I won the Philadelphia Junior Championship. Oh wow. Um, Played in a couple AJGAs, but it wasn't anything spectacular that was going to call, you know, have college coaches come knocking down my door. But you 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 went to Princeton, um, four year starter there. Um, you know, several I think three Ivy League championship teams, all Ivy honors, Scholastic All American, pretty impressive college golf career. And and Princeton's a pretty rigorous place. Um, what was it like, sort of being a four year starter in golf and balancing all the demands that I'm sure Princeton put on you academically and keeping that all together. Yeah, well, education always came first for us. That was a big priority of my parents, and they paid for all five kids to go through private education. That's probably the greatest gift they could have given us, and they're still working to this day to pay off the whatever <laughs> Yeah, came. I know the feeling. <laughs> um, and so I'm really grateful for that. And the goal through high school was just to get into the best college that I could. And for me, Princeton ended up being a great fit. I was very fortunate to get in. I think the golf coach had a bit of help with that. Um, I felt like I could play right away at Princeton, whereas I may not have been able to do that at down in the ACC or other schools I was looking sure. at. Um, so it really was a great fit from a climate perspective. I was used to playing in the adverse weather conditions. Right. Whereas right. a lot of teammates I had came from more temperate climates and struggled with the transition. So um, it really was a great fit. And, you know, I just I love the coach there. Coach Green is still coaching to this day that recruited me. And and I, as you can tell from the results, I just kept falling more and more in love with golf and the whole the whole process and system and um, at, at Princeton. So I'm really grateful for everything that I had to experience there. Yeah, I no, no doubt. Um, and uh, I think it's is it Springdale or Springfield? The, the course is right on the campus, right? <laughs> yeah, Springdale. Nice field to walk from your dorm with your yeah. golf to go practice golf. That's a luxury in college for sure. And it was pretty. I mean, of course, Princeton is one of the most gorgeous campuses in the country. And I always remember teeing off on that first hole when we would play you guys in college. And 
I don't remember what building that was in the background, but some, I don't know if it was a library or whatever, but it's a ball kind of going off towards it. It's a beautiful spot. Yeah, sure is. Um, so let me ask you this. Did you sort of think at any point in time about, um, gee, you know, pretty good at golf, you know, trying to make a go at it. Um, I know how competitive it is, of course, but um, kind of how, what was your thinking like? It, was that ever entering your mind at all? Professional golf was never part of the equation for me growing up in middle school and high school. I think part of that, as I reflect back now, it just didn't feel attainable. I didn't know any pro golfers. The PJ tour didn't even come to Philadelphia. Right. So while I loved, uh, I loved golf, I never thought it was something I could make a career in. When I got to college and I started to have some success and we were traveling, uh, you know, a bigger schedule than I ever played as a junior. And I continued to get better. Certainly the thought crossed my mind. And then when my great friend Tug, he turned pro after graduating from Wake Forest. Right. And I, so I had a chance my junior and senior year to go down to Sea Island where he was living with Chris Kirk and Brendan Todd. And, oh, oh, too uh, notable, but impressive yeah. a company he was keeping. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know how good those guys would end up being. Um, but when I went down and I... I couldn't really hang with those guys. I realized I probably should um, go make my earnings somewhere else. And uh, when you're at Princeton, almost none of my teammates were turning professional. Right. Uh, they were most people were going to New York. There was a, a herd mentality to go start your career on Wall Street. And um, that was certainly a way to open a lot of doors. And that's the, the route I ultimately took. So let's talk a little about that. And we can, I know Stu Francis is someone who's had. Uh, a big influence on your career, you know, as I, as you and I have talked about um, offline, I mean, I, I, there's this, the similarities are so striking to me, you know, two Princeton folks who are, you know, stellar golfers. Um, and of course, Stu, you know, has gone on, had a tremendous career. Um, I think you both have double digit club championships, which is not a small thing and played in lots of national um amateur tournaments um and Stu, of course just stepped down um finished his presidency of the usga but um maybe talk about kind of that and how that uh you know influenced you in terms of at least starting your career um as you said on wall street yeah well i owe so much to the princeton golf program and experience not least of which is meeting Stu francis which i was fortunate to do in 2005 uh, so my sophomore year, we won the Ivy League championship and qualified for the NCAA regional, which we were assigned to the West region of all places at Stanford. And oh, wow. So I was really excited. <laughs> I had never been to California before. I was so excited to go out and play at Stanford. And Stu lives locally there and had the right. team down the day after the competition to play Cypress Point together. Yep. That was an amazing experience, and I was fortunate to be paired in his foursome. So oh, wow. sophomore, you had the senior captain of the team, you had the junior number one player on the team, and myself and Stu, and we just, you know, hit it off right away and established a bond that we still have to this day, and he's been so influ influential in my life. I'm sure we'll talk more about that. For sure. And so um, you end up going to Wall Street, as you said, you know, so many uh, folks from Princeton, that's a, not an unusual path uh, to go into investment banking. And um, you go into Lehman Brothers. If And so if we're thinking about the calendar here, this is probably, I'm guessing 2007, you graduated. And of course, um, we all know what happened in 2008. So 
Boy, what was that like? That must have been uh, talk about going into the frying pan, right? As things turned out. Yeah. So I'll, I'll I'll take you back to the summer after my junior year. Yeah. Uh, when most of my colleagues in school, my classmates were getting internships, and that's the common path to get into a Wall Street firm right. is through a summer internship. I was thinking enough about playing professional golf that I decided to play golf full time that summer. So. Oh wow. Took a little unpaid internship with JP Morgan in the Philadelphia office. Okay. Um, unpaid gave me the flexibility to kind of work the hours and days I wanted and play. And, and that was working with my high school golf coach, uh, was working at JP Morgan at the time. So he said, come shadow me for a bit. When you're not competing, you can learn um here and there. And but I really was was playing golf full time. So that summer finishes and I decide that professional golf is not for me. Uh, and so now I'm behind the eight ball because right. everyone else has secured their jobs already. Right. So who do I know that can help me? I call Stu. Yeah. And uh, I ended up interviewing in probably four or five firms, um, but no surprise, Lehman was the one that hired me. And I took that job on the spot and uh, started my career. And at the time, Lehman had a great reputation. It was a top five. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, had been around for a hundred plus years. Yeah. And I, I wouldn't trade the start of my career for anything because I learned so much from July of 07 through September of 08 when Lehman filed for bankruptcy and then the acquisition and integration by Barclays. And we went through seven rounds of layoffs. I was in the uh, wow. global, global industrial coverage group. And so I was working on uh, General Electric was a big account of ours. So yeah. we were yeah. at financings and M&A advisory work for companies like GE. And um, somehow I made it through all seven rounds of layoffs. And so here I am on the other side of the equation. I've learned so much about just from observing crisis management, communication, how the leadership dealt with that whole situation, the good and the bad and otherwise. Um, and then coming out on the other side now as part of the new Barclays, where a lot of the mid layer had been eliminated through this turmoil, uh, I had right. an opportunity to quickly rise through the ranks there. Got it. Um, and so at what point do you end up going out to the West Coast? Yeah, so in uh, in 2009, well, I'll take you back again to my senior years when I yeah. called you, he said, would you want to start in San Francisco? And again, I didn't know anybody in California. I'd only been out there the one time to play at right. Stanford. And all my friends were going to New York. And I said, I sure. really want to start in New York. Um, and so as soon as I started, he started working on me. He he, brought <laughs> me out, right out. he had me come out and represent Lehman with him in a charity golf outing that was yeah. a fairly big deal. And we ended up winning and we won over a hundred grand for a charity of, of Stu's nice. choice. That was, nice. Showed me around, kind of showed me what life could be like working with him out there. And uh, that was in the back of my head. So as things were, I would say, coming back to life after the Barclays acquisition, Stu called me one day and said, hey, the technology sector is coming back first. And we've got some really great business coming in the door. Um, we would love your help. You know, how are things in the industrials group? There really wasn't a lot going on because the economy was still kind of frozen. And so um I I agreed to go move out and work with him uh, for I thought it'd be for a year or two. Mm -hmm. And I I never left and I'm still on the West Coast to this day. 
That's what happens. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Um, so you're you're on the West Coast with Barclays, you're playing some high level amateur golf, um, and um, I mean it's impressive. I mean, you know, besides you know, I alluded to the club championships, and you know, by the way, at Miriam and San Francisco Golf Club, two not too shabby places. Um, but you know, you're playing. You won the Pennsylvania Amateur at Oakmont, which is a biggie, Stocker Cup, Travis Invitational. Um, and then if I'm remembering right, I think at some point you said, hey, I want to maybe take a year off and really give this a shot. So you, you know, you're, you're, you're in investment banking, you're, you're out there at Barclays. Um, talk to me a little bit. So what was the thought process on that? And what was that like? Yeah, man. So one of the things that I didn't like about living in New York is I couldn't play much golf. And so right. Moving out to California, I didn't have, I wasn't married, no kids. I was working hard, but when I wasn't working, I was still playing golf in every spare moment I had. I used every vacation day I had on, on golf uh, competitions. And I was playing, I continued to get better um, despite yeah. not really practicing that much. And so um, working for Stu had so many great benefits. I learned so much from him. I met so many amazing people from him. But he also was supportive of my competitive golf. There are not a lot, many bosses that would get right. it and that he does. And so yeah. I was very fortunate to have this amazing situation where I could play 10 tournaments a year. And um, I had I just, as you said, kept having some success and kept trying to get a little bit more ambitious with the fields I was playing in. And then so you mentioned the 2014 year. This happened to. The stars aligned on this one. Stu called me one day, actually called me into his office one day and said, you know, I'm going to be making a switch. Um, my time at Barclays is basically the run uh, here is up and I'm going to go uh, over to Evercore, which is something that he had been talking to Roger Altman about for yeah. many years, going back even to his Lehman days. And um, I I really feel like I worked for Stu. I didn't necessarily work for Barclays. And sure. And he wanted me to go with him and I wanted to go with him. Um, but the way that the transition needed to work, there was a mandatory garden leave that he had to go yes. on. Yeah, sure. That makes a, sense. Non-compete period where he couldn't hire any Barclays employees. Right. And so there was about a nine month window where he was leaving Barclays, but before I could join Evercore. And this, uh, I just so happened to, I made the U.S. Amateur in 2013 which I'd never done before. I uh, won the Stocker Cup at the Preserve, which opened up a lot of great invitations for me. And so in March of 2014, when he resigned from Evercore, uh, from Barclays, I did as well. And it was nice to know I had the safety blanket on the other side, that I, I had a job waiting for me at Evercore if I wanted it. And um, I played a full season of high-level amateur golf. All the the ones I'd always dreamed about, but were never good enough in college to play. You know, wow! The Northeast Amateur, the Port, yeah, Santa Ana, the yeah, um, the U.S. Amateur. I made the U.S. Amateur again in the U.S. Mid Amateur. I won the Pennsylvania Amateur Oakmont. Um, really was playing some some great golf, and uh, I would say that was kind of my time to scratch the itch of having never turned professional and just seeing. Yeah. How how good I could get, what it would be like. I lived on the road, you know, 27. I think I played 27 tournaments in about seven months. Wow, that's a full schedule. <laughs> yeah, it was I made up for some for some lost time. And I learned a lot about myself and my golf game. And yes, I had I had some success, but I also found my ceiling. 
And I, I also, I, I got comfortable that that life is not for me, not that age 28 or 29, you know, I would have really had any uh, hope of being a professional golfer, but I got to experience what it was like. And um, it's challenging being on the road that much, being by yourself. And um, the hardest part that I found was just keeping your identity separate from your golf score. And that's, yeah. I, I know my friends yeah. playing professional golf, it's, you have to be more than your golf score. And that's really hard to do when you're a professional. Yeah, that is so true. And that is, that is well said. Um, uh, boy, that's, that's interesting, but that worked out perfectly, as you said, to get to scratch the itch. And, um, and I know, you know, Crump Cup, you know, you know, the Northeast at Wanamoise. I mean, you played, I know those are all great, great tournaments and it's great that you had that opportunity. So, um, before we sort of go get to sort of where you are now, which we want to certainly talk about, um, you were pretty involved with some things in San Francisco, as I understand as well. I mean, the first tee, um, you were director of Golden Gate Park Golf Development Foundation, neat things, you know, of course, Sandy Tatum, another legendary uh, Bay Area uh, fellow. Um, and um, maybe you could talk about what those were like, because uh, those sound like pretty neat things you were involved with. Yeah, again, I had some amazing opportunities when I moved out west, um, starting with an invitation to join San Francisco Golf Club. And I I just so happened to fall in this right spot at the time. They were looking for some junior members um, who were non-resident, sorry, non-legacy and not yeah. from the area per se. So yeah. um, they, had a, they had enough kids of members, but who were some of the new blood? And I was just in the right place at the right time in 2010. Um, and such an amazing club. And yeah. I met so many, the membership is just off the charts. I met so many great people out there and continue this day to, to do so. Um, and a few of them were really involved in the first T chapter of San Francisco, Sandy Tatum, sure. um, founding member, and then Scott Sollers and Tom Klein were the, basically the chairman of the board. Uh, I had volunteered for the first T back at Princeton with the team. That was something we did in Trenton but I hadn't been involved since then. And Scott and Tom were nice enough to invite me to be part of the board. Um, and I had a great run there, maybe six, seven years before I moved down to Pebble Beach. Wow. Um, in that time, we did a couple cool things. First was um, Sandy Tatum and a guy named Dan Burke, who was the executive director, had an idea to build a mentorship program for the kids. And one of their observations was that San Francisco has so many great young professionals who love golf, they maybe played college golf and they couldn't necessarily didn't have the resources yet to be big donors to the first tee, but they could donate their time. And so what we did, uh, friend John Jennison and I, we were the captains, we called ourselves, of Sandy Circle, which was a mentorship program that we created. Oh, cool. It ended yeah. up having close to 100 young professionals, men and women, um, usually not married, but love golf, play collegiate golf or play, were avid golfers, and they would come spend time the younger kids in the first year program they would do it in a group setting and then once the kids got into middle school high school age they would have one-on-one -on -one mentorship roles and um i was fortunate to meet uh, an amazing kid named rahan griffin uh who i still keep in touch with to this day and before i had my own kids rahan was like my my son that i had in san francisco wow wow that's awesome yeah. that's great um, so you're doing that. You're at San Francisco Golf Club. Great club, to be sure. Um, unbelievable membership. That is an understatement. Um, and so 
And you're at Evercore now. You're back after having scratched your itch um, and back with Stu at Evercore. So how does the Pebble Beach opportunity come on your screen? Yeah, it, I still can't believe to this day that it happened. Um, I'm, I'm waiting to wake up from the dream, honestly. <laughs> um, but I mentioned so many benefits of working with Stu and, and meeting people was one of the biggest ones. And Stu was at the time president of San Francisco Golf Club. And he also was on the executive committee of the USGA. Right. And, uh, he became championship chair. And in working with him, I got to ride his coattails to not just business things, but also some golf things. And he, uh, I got to know folks at the USGA better than maybe an average person would. And I also got to meet some of the ownership group at Pebble Beach Company, which um, just kind of happened naturally. I never thought of golf as a potential career or even possibly working at Pebble Beach Company. I didn't even know much about Pebble Beach Company, to be honest. Um, but in the summer of 2017, I got a call from Spencer Stewart, which was a search firm that Pell Beach Company sure. to help them find a chief strategy officer. And that was a job that fit my background pretty well. Uh, that person was basically responsible for growing the company's revenues, uh, sales, marketing, licensing, brand management, uh, utilizing technology to our advantage and, and understanding golf and all the relationships and partnerships that are possible and come out of our platform. And um, I was intrigued. I asked Stu if I, you know, if he'd be okay with me interviewing. He said, by all means, and keep me posted, which I did every step of the way. And it was a, a very long, thorough process for anyone who knows Bill Paraki and the ownership. Yeah, group. yeah. Um, they are very thorough in their decision making. And um, I made it near the end of this process. And I had a, a one of my many interviews with Bill. Um he asked if I'd be interested in the director of golf position. And I literally fell out of my chair. Uh, <laughs> uh, the prior director of golf, many people know RJ Harper was unfortunately sick at that time. Right. Right. Got cancer. And out of respect for, for him and his situation, Bill couldn't tell me much about it, but he said, I don't think we're going to hire you for the chief strategy officer job, but sit tight on this other opportunity. And, um, I didn't think I would ever stop working for Stu until he retired. Frankly, it was such a good deal. And even if I was offered this job, I didn't necessarily know that's what I wanted to do. Um, but when this opportunity came my way, it just seemed so unique. Uh, and I, I frankly didn't know if I'd be any good at it, but I was sure willing to try. And um, I'm so glad I did because it's been an amazing five and a half years now. I bet. So, yeah, just, and it was sad. I mean, R.J. Harper, you know, was Mr. Pebble Beach. He was kind of a legend there and sadly died of cancer in November of 2017. So you are really coming into a job that is often hard to sort of follow a legend. And he kind of yeah. was legendary. Um, what was it like to sort of fill those shoes? And, and it's not like you're coming from Obviously, you're steeped in the game, but you're not coming from a director of golf position at somewhere else. So you're coming into a really a totally new type of job following a legend at, you know, one of the most iconic spots in golf. Um, a little pressure there. I mean, what was that yeah. sort of like? <laughs> yeah, it was daunting. And unfortunately, I never had a chance to work or get to know RJ. And so that made it even harder for me. I think yeah. 
follow in the footsteps of a legend, ideally you would have studied under him and learned right. what became a legend. And so I had to do that on the fly. And I was very fortunate to have an incredible team and support system that he built around me that I was inheriting. So I really didn't need to change much. There was nothing that needed to be fixed when I got here. I just learned, you know, the first six months, I was learning as much as I could. And um, as a, the team here that I inherited, there's 11 people that report to me with over 200 years of experience. Wow. Wow. From, from those folks. And above me, there's a, a gentleman named Paul Spangler who had RJ's job previously. He hired RJ, groomed RJ, and then Paul had retired. He lives in Charlotte now, but he's been a great mentor to me. And I can always call him and ask him anything that I need. Um, and so the company, you know, Bill Paraki, Dave Stivers, the whole leadership team here, they know exactly what they're doing and they set me up for success. So I'm very grateful for that. Awesome. So let's talk a little bit about what your what uh, your role is there. I know it's super broad. I mean, for people listening to this, I mean, there's not just Pebble Beach um, in terms of the golf stuff. I mean, you've got Spyglass, Peter Hay course, you know, we can go on. I mean, it's a whole bunch of different facilities and you know you're responsible for what like operations course conditions strategic development i mean you got a lot of things yeah. and we'll get to the tournament stuff and put that to one side but just sort of the resort golf up thing it's a lot of stuff what is your week like i mean you just have a lot of hats you got to wear right it is busy there's a lot to it uh just to level set the golf courses that we have pebble beach golf links which everyone knows Spyglass Hill Golf Course, the links at Spanish Bay, Del Monte Golf Course, which is the original. It was built as a nine-hole golf right. course. That's right, yeah. Uh, off property in Monterey by the old Hotel Del Monte. And then we had a nine-hole par three course called Peter Hay Golf Course that we've since renovated into the Hay, uh, right. which is a great success for us. Which Ty Tiger did for you guys, right, if I'm remembering? Uh, that's right. That was <laughs> a great experience. Continues to be a great experience. And then we have a golf academy and a practice facility membership. Um, we have a, what we call a Duke's Club golf membership with 3,500 members. Um, so that's the scope of the operation and everything that goes into that on the pro shop side, the maintenance side, the guest experience, the employees, the financial performance, strategic capital projects, uh, all those things um, fall under my purview. That's a lot. <laughs> and, you know, if that wasn't enough, um, you've got the tournaments, right? So, um, and we've got even multiple levels of that. So we've got the AT&T, which is, uh, I, I, I tend to call it the Crosby, but, you know, well, you know, the AT&T is what, of course, it is these days. Um, so you've got to be interfacing pretty regularly, I would think, with the PGA Tour, um, as part of uh, your role and having the AT&T there every year. And of course, as everyone knows, we've been going through lots of turbulent times with the PGA Tour. You've kind of had a front row seat at that. What's that been like? Yeah, well, I should just I should start by saying that the Monterey Peninsula Foundation is really the, the cog of the wheel. And so okay. they are the local foundation here who runs the event and they contract with us. We support them in many ways. Got it selling the tickets, selling the hospitality, and they're the primary interface with the with with the tour. Now that Got being it. said, it's a great four-way partnership between AT&T, the tour, MPF, and ourselves. And yes, I can tell you that we've been spending a lot of time on what the future of the AT&T looks like. 
<laughs> yeah, we've heard positive rumors for next year. We'll see what happens with that in terms of the status. I mean, it's just it's a it's a whole new world, um, you know, in terms of the um, structure of the tour. That's for sure. Um, and um, then we turn to the USGA, uh, something you know well. You alluded to, you know, you're having played in um, national amateur tournaments, um, and you know the USGA has made Pebble an anchor site. Um, so, and I guess if I'm thinking back, you, you joined at the end of 2017. So you right out of the gate, you had the U S amateur in 2018, the U S open in 2019. Yeah. I think if I remember right, you even played as a marker, um, in the U S open a weekend. What, what is, what is the USGA experience has been like for you? Yeah. So, so that one, there is no intermediary, right? So it's Pelham. Right and the USGA. And you're right, we have a very close historic relationship with the USGA and a lot of exciting things coming up on in the immediate term and then it would deep into the future. Uh, and when I started, yes, the US Amateur was eight months away. The US Open was about 18 months away. Um, I was named vice chairman of the US Amateur. Really, my first main assignment was to make the US Amateur as great as it could be. There was a team that was already working on it here uh, what I was able to bring was the experience of someone who'd played in the U.S. Amateur a couple of times um, and still knew many of the competitors. And so that was a great place for me to start. Um, there wasn't a whole lot that I could mess up. And frankly, <laughs> I, I got to be along for the ride and learn a lot about planning a U.S. Open, which is a four year process. I think most people know that. So by the time I got here in early 2018, most of the plans were already set. Uh, and most of the tickets and hospitality all have been sold and all that good stuff. So my primary focus and responsibility for the 19 Open was everything inside the ropes, working with the USGA on golf course setup to make sure that our interests were represented, working with our superintendent, Chris Dahlhammer, to make sure that everything was going to plan, uh, and then working with the players. Um, and I have some cool experiences I can share on that front. I would uh, love to hear that. Sure. I was basically the the lead rep for Pebble Beach Company to make sure that the players had a great experience while they were on our property. So yeah, just one example, um, if a player wanted to come in for an advanced practice round, they came through my office. And depending on the, the situation, we would do our best to accommodate what they wanted to do while they were here. Um, and so we got a call shortly after Tiger won the Masters in, 19, in uh, 2019. <laughs> And uh, it's from Tiger's camp. And at that time, we we had a pretty good relationship from a company perspective with Tiger's camp because he has a foundation event here every year. Um, Peter Ubroth on our board, longtime co-chairman, has known Tiger since he was a kid down at uh, Big Canyon and so forth. Um, but we didn't have the relationship we do today with the TGR design and everything we've done with the hay. Right. And so they call. Tiger would love to play a practice round right after the PGA at, at Bethpage. Um, right. He was going to an event in Las Vegas for his foundation, and he was going to stop in. And um, so Joe LaCava was planning to come with, with Tiger, and he booked under an alias. So nobody else knew, except for a few people, um, that he was going to play that morning. And the night before I get a call, it says, Joe can't make the, the trip for some reason. Tiger needs a caddy. And I had already blocked off the morning to make sure that everything was perfect for him while he was here. And um, so now he's looking for a caddy. I'm grabbing the bag, of course. Right, of course. And so he had Rob McNamara play with him. Yeah, always. I walked around and there I am caddying for Tiger. And he was so terrific. He just couldn't have been nicer. 
very personable with me. It was like I had known him for ever, even though I had never met him before. Um, and out of that came uh, a lot of the ideas uh, for our work at the Hay together. That's very cool. And it's funny listening to that. So that's exactly Carrie Cosby, who is, you know, the head pro at Southern Hills, who we had on a few months ago, who is a big Tiger guy, um, had exactly the same experience when Tiger went for the practice round and caddied for him. Um, I'm sure that must be pretty cool to watch up close the way he hits the ball, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, the um, So we got the U.S. Women's Open coming up, um, which is pretty exciting. And uh, we had Amy Alcott on a few months ago, who has been instrumental in getting Riviera on the Rota. And, um, you know, I think if you look at the next 10 years of U.S. Women's Opens, it's great because it kind of looks like U.S. Men's Opens in terms of the sites they're going to, which wasn't always the case. Um, but the USGA has really elevated it. Um, so you must be very busy with your hands full planning that, which is only a couple of months away, right? It is. We're less than 90 days away. Uh, I've been honored to serve as the general chairman of the planning committee here for Pell Beach Company. And um, yeah, this event has been not just months or years in the making, but frankly, decades, because the company and the USGA have talked about having women's open here forever. It was a pretty high hurdle to, to get over to make everything work. And um Back in like 08 and 2014, there were a couple of times where they were close and then never brought it together. And so now to finally have this event coming and having the world's best women players uh, get their chance to play Pell Beach is extremely exciting for all of us. Well, if you to the extent you can, what were some of the challenges you did just, just in terms of getting another date on the calendar and taking up prime time from the resort? Or what, what did you sort of see as some of the challenges to making it happen? Well, I would summarize it's expensive to have an event at Pebble Beach, right? Yeah. So, um, <laughs> That's pencil out on both sides for a nine yeah. or day period. And it's not just the event week, but all the preparation that goes into it. Um, so we we reduce play going in and you add it all up and it's it's a pretty uh, high bar to clear. That makes sense. And and I know they've, you know, they've also enhanced the purse. They've got a sort of presenting sponsor to help make that happen, which is great. So um, maybe talk, if you can, about some of the tweaks or changes that have been made. Um, I've only had the opportunity to play Pebble twice in my life, once 30 years ago and once last summer. And fortunately, it was right after the eighth hole reopened. Uh, so we got to play the regular green. But from my eyes, and just and obviously I've watched it on TV a, a zillion times over the years, it looked like the back of the green, it looked like to me there was some added real estate for the green there. And I'm assuming that was for pin positions. And it looked like maybe 11 got a little tweak, but you're obviously know this much better than I do. So I'm curious, what were the changes and kind of the thinking behind them? Yeah. Well, one of the things I love about being uh, at Pebble Beach Company is the way that we go about our planning process. So in 2019 US Open finished, we went through an extensive three month lessons learned process. Mm. And we have amazing volumes of documentation. If none of the management team was here planning for the 27 event, we'd have a playbook for the team to follow. Wow. Um, one of the things that we really focused in on is what we want the golf course to look like in 2027. What did we learn from 2019? And what do we want to improve by the time the, the men's open comes in 27? 
And then we could bisect that further and say, what do we want to get done before the women's open in 23? And what have we learned from the amateur in the open that's going to apply to the women's open? And we'd never host a women's open before, let alone a women's professional event. Right. The data we have on the men's game. So we've relied heavily on the USGA course setup team from the from the women's open side to help us dial in these plans. And um, most people know that uh, Pebble Beach has a mix of green types because we've never closed. We're never able to close the golf course and do a comprehensive green renovation. Uh, we have to pick them off one at a time. And so so that leaves we currently have five original greens left. Um, that presents quite the challenge for our superintendent. If you can imagine, uh, there's three different green types out there. There are new USJ spec greens that have sub air. There are USJ green specs that were built in the, in the 90s and don't have sub air. And then there are original 1919 push-up greens. Oh, and wow. <laughs> the, the goal is obviously for the golfer to not know the difference in firmness yeah. and otherwise. Um and so after the 2019 Open, we prioritized number 11 and number eight um, to be the next greens to be done before the Women's Open. This is not a new trend. Between 2010 and 2019, there were four greens that were redone, 9, 13, 14, and 17. And the playbook is the same for all of them. It's basically to restore the design intent of what was there in 1919. So as you know, over 100 plus years of play, greens tend to shrink in size and the same right. building. Um, the greens makes the mounding more severe. And so you're basically undoing the sand buildup from 100 years, going back to the original pictures and looking at the original green contours and recapturing those lost areas. And then when the greens were built and designed 100 years ago, the average speed was eight. And now we're in the mid 12s for our championships. And so at those speeds, we had lost some of our whole locations. And so just gently softening where we needed to enough to be able to reclaim the lost hole locations at the today's green speeds. Yeah, you know, it's funny you mentioned that. I Someone posted something the other day with stiff meter readings from about 20 or 30 years ago at all of the, and I'm, I think Pebble may have been on all, all the sort of notable tour courses, including the Masters. And it is remarkable how much faster when you see those numbers, they were all single digits. They were all like, I want to say around high sevens to eight, you know, yeah. even Oakmont, which of course, famously, they always say they have to slow the greens for the U S open, you know, right. was like at a nine. And, you know, now it's like, I mean, what do you guys have for the tournaments? It must be like 12 or 13. Mid or, yeah. yeah. Mid and uh, in 2010, the USJ and the company had a goal of presenting consistent conditions from Monday to Sunday. And that's a very difficult thing to do. It is hard. Yeah. And it led to some, things that the company and USJ weren't happy or proud of uh, come the weekend in 2010. So we had those lessons learned going into 2018 US Amateur. We got a chance to basically go through our new and improved agronomic program and give it a test run. We're really happy with those results. And that was the the blueprint that we went through for the 2019 Open. Got it. Got it. And, and I have to say, and, and hats off to your superintendent team. I mean, the thing when I played last summer, that I think was the most impressive thing is knowing how much play you guys get. Yeah. The condition was fabulous. I mean, that's not easy to do, right? I mean, with all that play. <laughs> it still blows my mind uh, what the maintenance team is able to do. I have so much respect. And the whole team led by Bubba Wright is our new superintendent. Uh, Bubba was groomed by Chris Dahlhammer. And when Chris 
wanted a little bit slower paced job after the US Open. He went to MPCC for the country club life. And number two that he groomed Bubba Wright was ready to step right in. Uh, Fortunate for me, uh, was an easy decision. And um, there's so much experience with the team there and pride in their work and commitment. And they they get it done. And our guests have very high expectations when they're here. Um, 363 days of golf. And uh, we really can't afford to have below um, standard conditions. So it's amazing what they're able to do with the windows of work that we're, that we present to them. Yeah, for sure. And I should also mention, you know, the other thing that I hadn't, again, it'd been a long time since I've been there, but boy, the practice area, the practice range, what a difference. I mean, it's just unbelievable. I mean, it used to be kind of not what you would hope it to be. And now it's kind of at the other end of the spectrum, right? I mean, that's a beautiful facility. I can't take any credit. That was done in 2014 before I got here. Okay. Um, Really built a terrific facility. And I will say that um, before COVID, we had about 200 members of the practice facility and a reasonable book of lesson business. And then after COVID hit, as we know, golf experienced this great surge. Demand for our practice area grew tremendously, and uh, basically overnight we doubled our membership. We realized that we were now at capacity and have a a long and healthy wait list to become a member. Um, and so over in my time here, we've redone the T deck twice um, to expand, uh, get as much space as we can. The first time was before COVID, and we didn't realize what was going to be coming on the back end. That was more of a cyclical strip and and level and resod and then we saw the demand coming after covid and we expanded the t-deck as much as we could which was about 50 percent um to accommodate the the additional demand on the facility so you say members so you can sort of join the practice facility or what 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 sort of how does that work yeah you can pay it's an annual fee okay that allows you all the access you want to come out and practice when you when you'd like to wonderful um and um you able to keep your game in shape with all this stuff that you're doing? You still able to play much? It goes in waves. I knew when I took this job, it would be a sacrifice for my playing career, but I was comfortable with that. I felt like uh, I had realized what I can do with my clubs and I had, you know, I love competing, um, but I felt like this opportunity gave me a chance to do more in the game of golf than I ever could with my clubs alone. And so it's a sacrifice that I've been happy to make. Um, I now have two little kids, four and yep. two. Um, I spend as much time teaching them the game now as I do working on my own game, which I, I love even more than playing myself. I bet. I bet. Well, that's really cool. You've had quite the journey um, and it's obviously far from over your young fellow, but um, what an awesome uh, journey to get to Pebble Beach. Um, uh, Miriam, San Francisco Golf, Pebble Beach, pretty Pretty good places along the way, right? <laughs> Fortunate golf has been very good to me. Hey, John, I, I really, I know again, I know how busy you are with all everything going on and with the Women's Open coming up. Um, I really want to thank you for the time today. This has been terrific, and um, good luck with the Women's Open. I'm sure it will be fantastic, and I know we're all looking forward to it. Great, thanks, Larry. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure.